The American terrorist Reed Richards claims to have traveled to ancient Egypt using Lord Doom's time platform. We see right through you. Doom's faithful retainer Boris confirms that his greatest invention is still right there in one of our leader's auxiliary castles, where it belongs. Meanwhile, Richard's terrorist associate Johnny Storm has been seen fleeing in terror from, get this, wet doof falling off trees and bushes. Big man. There seems to be trouble brewing between international powers too. The Crimson Dynamo has announced that he's defecting to the United States to work for Stark Industries. You think that might have something to do with the rumor that Tony Stark is secretly working with Russia to waste American money on boondoggles? I wonder. And in lighter news, now that the famous model Chili Storm, no relation to Johnny, has changed her hairstyle, the rumors are settled, Chili does, indeed, have a perfectly good left eye. Now you know. This is Olga von Kampen for the VOL. Zero, zero, six. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, six. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth as Lord Doom sees it. And now, our weekly feature on the history of our world's greatest hero, Victor Von Doom, with your host Douglas Woe, by special arrangement with Universe 1218. Thank you, Doombot P57. It's my pleasure to introduce this week's guest, Matt Singer. Matt is the editor of Screen Crush and the author of the book Marvel's Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular, the definitive comic art collection. And this week we're talking about Amazing Spider-Man number five. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on to talk about this excellent comic book. So you were saying that that uh, you, you have a connection to this comic book that goes way, way back in your life. Yes, I do. Um, <clears throat> my, uh, my father encouraged me, or at least didn't discourage me from getting into comics. He had loved comics as a kid, and he's... Uh, he was sort of at the perfect age for th this era. He remembers getting all of the early Marvel comics, Fantastic Four number one and Amazing Spider-Man number one. And he, you know, he, he uh, had a whole collection. Certainly in those days, it was not the way we imagine a collection now with boards and bags and boxes. You know, it was like a pile of comics under his bed. And then, you know, the, the tragic classic story, my, my grandmother, who is a wonderful woman, Without, without flaw, I would say, I adored this woman. The one flaw she did have was that she threw away most of my dad's comic books when he, I guess when he went to college or whatever. He did, I don't know how some were saved. Like, were they in a different room? Did he put them aside? Like, I don't actually know. I should ask him this. How come these were saved? He probably doesn't know, but a few survived and like a stack if people are listening, they won't be able to see, but you know, like, uh, I don't know, two or three inches worth of comics, you know, a decent stack, mostly Justice League of America comics, because that was my dad's favorite book. But then there were a few very old Marvel comics in there from this period. And the, the earliest Spider-Man, and Spider-Man was always my favorite character. So that was the most exciting. The earliest one that was in there was Amazing Spider-Man number five. Wow. which is the one we're going to talk about. So I, and I still have it. It's not here. It's at my parents' house, but I, I, I looked at it the last time I was there. It's very, you know, if I, if I wasn't gentle with it, it would just completely fall apart. And I don't think the cover is there, but, but the rest of it is there. And it's, and uh, I, I used to love, love reading it as a kid. 
And I uh, hadn't read it in a little while, but I was, I was delighted to reread it again last night to talk to you uh, on the podcast. And I think it's just, I think it's just terrific, actually. I think it's a great little comic book. It's a fantastic story. And it, it points, to, points forward to so much stuff over the rest of Spider-Man's career. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you've written a book about Spider-Man. I have, yes. Yeah. It's uh, called Marvel Spider-Man. Uh, it's got a very long title. So let me see if I can remember it off the top of my head. Marvel Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular, colon or sl- dash or slash the definitive comic art collection, which is, it's a, it's a little unwieldy, but basically it's just a history of Spider-Man comics. And it's kind of like a, it's like a coffee table book, uh, you know, oversized with a lot of artwork. And um, yeah, and so uh, it's all about the history, just about the comics. There's, you know, uh, movies or other things, cartoons might get mentioned very briefly, but it's really just about the comics. And uh, it was the the best, hardest job I ever had because I, you know, I've been been researching it. You know, I'm sure you can relate. You know, I felt like I was researching that book for, you know, at the time, 35, 38 years, whatever it was when I wrote (laughs) it. And right. so it was just like, it was, you know, it's like, uh, put me in coach. I'm ready to play. It was like just the, just a dream gig. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's still available. So if you, anywhere you get books, you can find it. It's from Inside Editions. Uh, very, very happy with how it came out. And uh, yeah, I was I kind of, this wasn't necessarily what they uh, asked me to do, but my mandate for myself when I was doing it, when uh, I got the job from uh, Insight, was like at that age when I got Amazing Spider-Man number five, it was like when I was, you know, probably like 13, 14, around that age. And, um, you know, I they I used to get like every year for my my birthday or whatever, like uh, one of those big coffee table books, like the history of Marvel comics, the, that kind of thing. So there wasn't really, or at least I didn't have at that age, like one just dedicated to Spider-Man. And so what I was trying to do was like make the one I would have loved at that age. Awesome. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I hope I, I, uh, I hope people check it out. I, I'm, I think it's pretty good pretty good book i'm a very objective uh, opinion on that but uh, yeah i think it's pretty good uh, so this this is real early in spider-man's history this is actually the first monthly issue we're looking at out amazing yes. Spider-Man number five uh yes and lee steve ditko really early on and for the first time in marvel's history they're bringing over a villain from one series to another yeah, and it was the first time Doctor Doom had appeared outside the Fantastic Four as well, yeah. right? This was his yeah. first appearance uh, uh, sparring with another Marvel character, which is very interesting. And this is very, um, very early Doom. I mean, th- there is no Latveria. There is no sense that right. he's the leader of a nation. He's just a villain. He's, he's a real nasty guy. A guy, yeah. Yeah, he hates Reed Richards. He hates the Fantastic Four uh he he, at this point you know like they talk a lot about like him being into the dark arts but he doesn't really do anything magical he's just i mean i guess sometimes he teleports he has a castle (laughs) all bad guys need a castle Um, i believe this is his castle in the adirondacks okay sure he has a castle in ferry he also has a castle in upstate new york (laughs) it's true it's a summer castle you know yeah exactly exactly (laughs) That said, even though there's no Latveria or any of that, it does, I mean, it's, it absolutely is Dr. Doom. It's not like a, uh, it, it feels like the authentic Doom. It doesn't feel like you're getting uh, half, half-baked Doom or half a Doom. It's, it's the full Doom, I would say. So let's, let's go over what happens in this really peculiar story here. 
which is also kind of giving Steve Ditko a chance to draw a bunch of Jack Kirby's characters, which is not really something he's done a lot of before. And it's something that he was going to continue to do a lot of after this. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, and he, I guess he did draw the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man number one. Right, yeah. But um, yeah, I think he, I, I love the the, the uh, artwork in this book. I mean, I'm gonna I might quote from the page numbers. They're gonna be the page numbers, and I'm looking at it on the Marvel Unlimited app. Yeah, so yeah. it's like the actual numbers on the actual pages that are drawn on there. But like some of the the fight, the the, the second half of the book is kind of this long like battle between Spider-Man and Doom. And I just love some of the sequences of panels in, in it are really beautiful and fluid. I think the page 15 on the bottom, when uh, Spider-Man is escaping from one of Doom's death traps, yeah. Yeah, there's like four panel sequence where he like leaps onto a wall, flips over, jumps to the ceiling, jumps down and escapes. It's this beautiful little like, you know, it, it, I don't necessarily often, especially in these early comics, think of, of Ditko as the most like dynamic athletic kind of the that like the visceral movement is not something I'm necessarily looking for in his books especially like these early ones but I love that sequence it's so beautiful and so clear the storytelling is so precise and stuff and you really do get a sense of that kind of Spider-Man can flip and move and you know I, lo I love that little that little moment and, and really the whole book uh, looks terrific but I mean just looking at it again last night I was uh, kind of marveling at that one little sequence alone. Dicko's so fluid, like he, just in terms of communicating what's happening, even like the the uh, the scenes earlier where we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, but where Flash's friends have made the costume for him. Yes. You can just look at the pictures and see that that's what's happening, that like they don't think that he's really Spider-Man and they all think it's hilarious. And just everything about the way they're posed, everything about their facial expressions, the way that uh, Dicko blocks the scene, it's just fantastic throughout. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I, I mean, it's only the fifth issue of, of Amazing Spider-Man. Obviously, there's Amazing Fantasy before that and stuff. But, like, they have it down already to such a, like, a beautiful formula. What, one of the things I love about all these early Lee and Ditko issues is just the way every issue, Spider-Man wins and he <laughs> loses every single time. Or, he, you know, or he succeeds and somehow makes things worse for Peter Parker or whatever it is. The poetry, the tragedy of every single issue of the uh, this early run is what I love. And this is like a, a classic example where Spider-Man kind of single-handedly, you know, at least fights Doctor Doom to a standstill, which, you know, no small feat. Yeah, yeah. yeah, especially at this time when he's been constantly fighting the Fantastic Four. And uh, after all of the dust clears, it's like he he saved Flash. Uh, and Flash is the one who's bragging about it to all the school kids. And of course, and, and Peter is sitting there grumbling to himself at the end. And, you know, like he uh, went out, the, he had to give an excuse to Aunt May to get out of the house to save Flash. And the, the excuse he gave was, I'm going to get a, what are they called? A, a, a fuse for the fuse, fuse box. Yeah, a fuse for a fuse box. And then when he comes back, he didn't even do that. So Aunt May is mad at him, right? And Jameson's angry that he didn't get pictures. And it's like this whole last page after he's had this triumph against Dr. Doom is one failure after another. And I just, and that happens over and over in these early issues. And I just love that uh, about about these early issues is kind of the 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 beauty of the way that they're structured where so much of it is Spider-Man versus Peter or Peter's struggling with that weighing who to be and which responsibilities are more important. And 
Um, they always seem to end in a way that he, he's able to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Let's put it that way. And Peter's got one uncanny double after another, like starting, starting from the very beginning of the series, like the chameleon is the first one. And we will see another one in this issue with Flash beginning his entire lifetime of trying to be Spider-Man. Yes. But so let, let's, let's start at the beginning of the story. We, we uh, begin with you know, a newscast with J. Jonah Jameson going on TV to rant about Spider-Man and Peter watching it, trying to distance himself from Spider-Man just so nobody's going to suspect. And then we cut to Dr. Doom. This is actually continued straight out of that last story that Doom appeared in, Fantastic Four 16 and 17. Uh, even reproduces the sequence where he jumps out of his amazing flying ship and yes. falls through the clouds. And then he explains, oh yeah, I had the, the jet-powered flying belt I wore enabled me to glide to safety. He's not going to have to escape much longer because after we establish Latveria and we establish he's got, quote, diplomatic community, which apparently works a little bit differently in the Marvel universe than it does in ours, he's going to be able to rely on that. But now he has to, he has to like, survive one terrible-looking fate after another. And he comes up with an extraordinary device to contact Spider-Man. Yes, yeah, he, like, uh, taps into his spider sense, essentially, and uh, communicates to him through that through putting a spider in a glass vitrine <laughs> yeah uh, you know it's 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 uh he's dr doom like it's amazing how much that that squares with me like when you say he was able to, to call spider-man on his spider sense and he put a spider in a jar to do it and i'm like yeah he's dr doom he can do and that like it's he, just he invented it's, the world's first working time machine i mean that's true they, he's already done that by the time we're, we're here yeah and he survived being like schlepped off into outer space and being shrunk right to the micro right. world so to me it's like yeah this is nothing this is like a cup of coffee to dr doom no problem that's legit yeah normally this works pretty much this way more with ant-man than with spider-man but okay it's doom like doom can doom can do what he wants but what doom is looking for is not to attack spider-man it's to get him to join him right it should be child's play for me to persuade Spider-Man to join me against the Fantastic Four. And you know, Spider-Man follows the, this spider signal or whatever, and Doom immediately extends the hand of, well, not quite friendship to him. What he says is, Friendship is for weaklings. What I offer you is power. Together we could rule the world. Yes. You're an outcast the same as I. I. I actually think this is a brilliant little... Uh, uh, a story. It makes total sense with both Doom and also with uh, with Spider Man. Like from Doom's perspective, you know, and we've already, you know, you've got J. Jonah Jameson constantly pumping out these stories, and we've already seen J Jameson on TV saying Spider Man is a menace, you know, and all that. That's the very first page of the comic. Like from Doom's perspective, he might assume that that's true. Oh, Spider Man is a menace. This guy is trouble. So maybe he actually will team up with me and uh, help me defeat the Fantastic Four. It makes, makes total sense. And the whole thing about, you know, he says like, um, or this is really a thought, we can read it. Uh, Dooms thinks that he's gonna appeal to his sense of envy and pride. And like, you know, Spider-Man was a guy who was on TV as a wrestler and stuff. Yeah. And you know, there's all this stuff where he tried to join the Fantastic Four for money. Like it actually, not we know Spider-Man is gonna turn him down, but we understand why, Doom would actually want to team up with him. It, it, it totally squares. I think that that's really, I think it's all very clever actually. And Spider-Man thinks about it for a minute. And 
one thing about, it, if you look at the Lee Ditko period of Spider-Man, it is the story of Peter Parker, who has lost his father twice over, desperately looking for a new father figure and one absolutely terrible older male scientist father figure after another presenting himself to him. And right. like, let me be your new father figure. And Peter thinks about it. You know, me team up with you, huh? Wouldn't, man, wouldn't that be a gasser? Jonah Jameson would really have something to howl about then. It's a thought. It occurs to him first. If we think of Spider-Man as the story of how a boy becomes a man, how this kid who has wrecked the mechanism by which he's expecting to age into an adult, how he's going to become an adult, then this is a step along the way for that. This is a brilliant scientist, somebody who really could be a good role model for him, but isn't. You're like me. Right. We have a lot in common. We're outcasts. Outcast. We're not so different, you and I, as a, in a terrible action movie, he might say to him. Yeah. You're an outcast the same as I. Yeah. Same as I, yes. The same as I. And of course, Peter like thinks about it for a minute and then goes, nah. Doom says, I warn you, if you are not with me, then we are deadly foes. Is this the first time the phrase deadly foes was used in connection with Spider-Man? That's so funny you asked me that because I was going to ask you that same question because <laughs> I was wondering because that became, you know, even a, there was a, a series, the deadly yeah. foes of Spider-Man. I was wondering, I, I have in my notes here, was this the first time that the phrase deadly foes was mentioned? I guess maybe I guess. somebody else can tell us, but it, I, it certainly caught my attention as well. So he webs him up and of course, it's a doom bot. Because it's always a doom it's always, bot. It's always a doom bot, it's yes. Always a doom bot. At this point, uh, fight scene begins. And as usual, like the first fight scene is one that Spider-Man doesn't do so well in. Like he, he always loses the first time and wins the second time. That, that is right. the formula. Yes. Um, well, Spider-Man, I mean, that's, uh, Spider-Man is so much off so often. You know, it's, it's not about even victory. It's about perseverance, right? That that's, yeah. the, that's the theme of so many Spider-Man comics. And so that's, it's, it's writ large here is that he, he kind of fails the first time, but he doesn't give up and he tries again. And that time he succeeds. Um, but he gets away. Doom, Doom blows up the building. Spider-Man, of course, gets accused of blowing up the building. Right. And uh, we return to the offices of the, of the Daily Bugle where Betty Brandt, who gets named as Betty for the first time in here. She was Miss Brandt before that, but uh, she's named as Betty for the first time on the first page of this issue. Betty and Jameson are talking about Spider-Man and Peter's just kind of lurking in the background. going, Never noticed she was so pretty. Yeah. That's going to go places. Yeah. It sets up so much stuff. And it also sets up Flash Thompson's gigantic man crush on Spider-Man. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the that's the perfect term for it. And I love, you know, I'd love here again, like just the 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 the, the sort of perfect structure of this issue. The first couple, you know, the first page or uh, yeah, the first page when they're watching, um, they're watching Jameson. I think uh, Flash calls Peter the now very inappropriate on PC term of a panty waist, I think, and is making fun of him and all this. And then what happens is, you know, he's going to show him by dressing up like Spider-Man. And then he's the one, of course, who is imprisoned and then becomes cowardly. And Peter gets to be heroic. Just the whole, you know, and then, of course, at the end of the issue, as we already mentioned, like Flash gets to crow about his adventure and all that. Just the, just how this all kind of layers together is just like so perfect and wonderful. I just love all the way that the ways that all that all kind of works together it's just they, these guys knew what they were doing there's so much stuff with 
Flash dress literally dressing up as Spider-Man and pretending to be him. And there's there's a bit of slapstick here with like, Peter walking on the other side of the fence and Doom <laughs> sensing, oh, Spider-Man's right here, and thinking like, oh, there he is, he's in costume. I'll get him right now. And of course it's Flash. This is far from the last time that Flash Thompson is going to dress up as Spider-Man yeah. or become a Spider-Man type. And I mean, he eventually becomes Venom host. <laughs> Venom and was he also he was also anti-venom at one point, he's, I think. Um he's he's been every kind of iteration of Spider-Man. Every which way. His Spider-Man outfit from from this issue turns up again in Untold Tales of Spider-Man. I think Peter actually ends up wearing it a couple of times. I mean, there, there's a lot of just like psychologically rich stuff going on here. It's also a pretty good fake Spider-Man costume. That's that it the really gals, is. as he yeah. as he puts it, the gals did a great job on this costume. Whoever these gals are, I hope they're professional seamstresses because they did a incredible job making this. Uh, a, you know, it, it tricks Doctor Doom, so it's got to be a pretty good, a pretty good uh, phony costume. Well, Peter also made his own costume, so uh, true. We have we have not seen much evidence of his sewing skill ever otherwise, but he <laughs> you know, really, really did a real solid job on that. So. Doom kidnaps Flash, thinking that he's uh, got Spider-Man. Peter comes home. Uh, Aunt May is, as always, watching TV. There's so much television in these early Spider-Man stories, like mm. from the first to the last of the Ditko period. And Doom comes on TV. Now, he apparently can't communicate with the Fantastic Four by putting the number four in a glass jar and aiming <laughs> some kind of beam at it. So he's, he's uh, taken over the, the uh, transmission to announce that, you know, quote, as you can see, I hold Spider-Man a helpless captive unless the Fantastic Four promise to disband and surrender to me one, one at a time. One at a time. Special. Uh, Spider-Man <laughs> will, will forfeit his life. I will wait exactly one hour for a reply. The Fantastic Four don't actually do anything at this point. Spider-Man decides that he's going to do it. So he does that thing you mentioned where he uh, fakes blowing a fuse in the basement so he can sneak out of the house and weirdly, there are two remakes of this story that Marvel has published over the years. Uh, there was the uh, Spider-Man chapter one thing that John, John Byrne did back around right. 1999. Yes. And that's a really condensed version of it. It's, it's mushed down to about 10 pages. But there's also a Marvel Age Spider-Man, which was a very odd series that they published around 2004. The All Ages book? The, the All Ages, Ages book? book. It was yeah. an All Ages book that was just direct adaptations of the first 12 issues of Amazing Spider-Man yeah. into a sort of quasi-manga-style mid-2000s visual and writing idiom. And it reproduces so much of the plot of this story verbatim anyway, right down to losing the fuse. <laughs> well, it's a timeless story. Fuses, everyone needs fuses, you know? Everyone they, needs fuses. They and it works. Style. Like, it is a perfectly good little plot device. It stands the test of time 40 years later it's still right there uh, i want to i do want to point out on this page i yeah. i don't know if it's in my book but it was definitely uh i almost it was up for consideration just because i love the panel so much the top right panel on this page of peter and uh, you know with the half spider-man half peter face it's not certainly not the first time uh, that we've seen that i think it, there's already been one of them in this issue yeah, yeah. I, was, I always loved that that image um and I feel like here is like maybe the most perfect example of like the, the power of that image because you have, you literally have Peter like 
at war with himself in that panel. And the, they even have the thought bubbles, like each side of his personality is thinking here. One thought bubble is coming out of Peter's head, the Peter side of his head, I should say. And it's like, what a break. Uh, you know, he's all excited that Flash has been kidnapped and maybe he's gonna die. He's thrilled. <laughs> And then the Spider-Man side of his head is giving a different thought bubble, which is like, uh, 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 what am I thinking? I can't, you know, power and responsibility. I have to, I have to do something. It, it maybe it's obvious, but I just love that, like just putting that sort of the duality of this guy, this teenager who's trying to figure out who he is and who he's gonna be. I mean, it's that one panel, it sums it all up. That's the whole dilemma of this guy. That's the whole the whole story in that one little moment. It's just perfect. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And teenage Peter, like uh, glasses and, and tie Peter, is kind of a jerk. He's totally a jerk. Yeah, he's, 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 he's definitely softened as a character over the years. This early guy, I mean, like you were saying, when, he, when Dr. Doom says, let's team up and destroy the Fantastic Four, he's, he's like, well, you know, like chin scratch emoji. He's thinking about it for a second before yeah. he dismisses it. Yeah. We see him starting to go off. He's got his weird spider light on his belt. That yeah, they love the spider light in these early sure issues. Did. Yeah, he's uh, gonna and he's gonna use it again when he actually sees Doctor Doom in a page or two. It's like he he sneaks up on him and then <laughs> he spoils the element of surprise by introducing himself. Uh, fl belt flashlight first. Finally, we cut away to the Fantastic Four. We see the Baxter Building, and we just see an exterior shot of it and. Fantastic Four are not running off to Spider-Man's rescue. They're just squabbling among themselves about what to do about it. That's yeah, all. it's a little surprising that they don't, they're undecided whether to let Spider-Man die. They're like, yeah. we, I mean, they know that they should help him, but they, we can't break up. That would, you know, we got a good thing going here. We can't just quit. So uh, yeah, and it's it's funny that we don't see them either here. It's just it's just the the Baxter building and the, and the uh, word balloons. Although I guess it's to the, you know, it's, What's fun is that you know exactly who's talking in all four balloons just from their voices. Yeah. Like the, the the you know that it, you don't have to see them to know who is who is who in that group, which is fun. That is one of the glories of Stanley. Like everybody has a voice, and you can tell who they are inside of five words. Also, you know it makes sense if you're only going to spend one panel on this, you have to make an exterior shot. Like, right. If you cut from like Spider-Man testing out his belt signal to like oh here's the Fantastic Four like. Where did that transition come from? But you cut to an exterior scene, like you know what the building is, you know who's inside it, and you're hitting the plot point that has to be hit. Ditko's economy is something to behold. So uh, Spider-Man you know, finds his way to where Doom is, where Flash is still imprisoned by Doom, and he's freaking out. He's saying, let me out of here. And, uh, Doom gets to give a fantastic villain speech. Silence, you cringing, sniveling coward. The famous Spider-Man, bah, you're nothing but a frightened weakling. My son and I actually have a blog called marvelbah.blogspot.com, which is just a, every panel where somebody says bah. Uh, well, this is a classic of the form right here. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's it's one of the, one of the in, initial classics of... of the Marvel bot. So Spider-Man tracks him down, sneaks inside, tells Doom that uh, he's got the wrong Spider-Man captured, and the fight is on. Spider-Man puts Doom's finger blaster out of action. They actually call it the finger blaster. God bless <laughs> 1964. <laughs> I'm, you know what's always hung? I mean, this is not really, this is a real nitpick. This is a silly thing. But even as a kid, this drove me crazy. On page 13, when Spider-Man, we were talking about him shining the belt light. 
yeah. when he shows up. He's upside down, but the light is the right side up. That always bothered me as a kid. I was, was like, how did, does he have like a, like I literally would sit there and think about it. I was like, does Spider-Man have a dial that he can turn to turn it the right way, depending it's on which be way? It's got to weighted, right? I don't know, but it, I always wanted to know, how did he get it to show up right side up when he's upside down? That always drove me uh, crazy, even as a kid. The but back happened, to the finger blaster, yes, it's destroyed Back to the finger now. blaster, yes. <laughs> yes, he starts throwing web balls like the human torch, but I use web balls instead of fireballs, okay? Doom imperiously says, I have found your juvenile antics mildly amusing until now, but I begin to grow bored, and so... And triggers another few death traps. Doom sets you know, up a lot of death traps. He loves they never a death work. trap. No. He really I, does. I, but yes, there's a lot of death traps. They're very, very, like, intricate and seemingly a lot of effort for very, like, it seems like they'd be much easier to escape than actually succeed. Like, they almost seem designed to fail in some yeah. ways. I don't know, maybe that speaks to Doom's ego, you know, that that uh, that he's just almost more impressed that he made this thing and he's like showing it off. Look at what I can do. Look at what I made. You know, like killing him is almost tangential to like the fun of like showing off these really cool things that only he could create because he's the greatest genius in the world. He's a showman, you know, he's a th yeah. very theatrical person. I mean, look at how he's yeah. dressed. This is This is not just about the direct... You know, it's not about just shooting him. You know, I guess he did try to, well, I was going to say finger blast, but that would be inappropriate. He was going to yeah. shoot him, <laughs> but that didn't work. So he, after yeah. that didn't work, he then, okay, he, you know, now he's going to show you these, he's got this, I don't even know what, what this thing is supposed to be, that it, it has like spinning balls and he jams the mechanism, Spider-Man jams the mechanism right. by, by shooting it with, uh, with his webs. Um, and then comes that four panel sequence that I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation that I like so much where the, the floor catches fire and he manages to flip onto the wall and flip over and jump to the ceiling and then jump down. Just love that little, you know, it just looks so perfect on the page like that. Just some great storytelling by Ditko. And then there's a kind of electrical trap, which apparently web fluid can now conduct electricity. Yes. It either insulates or conducts depending on what the story needs. I was just about to say, I feel like in other stories, it has the exact opposite purpose. But here, well, maybe it's because Dr. Doom is metal and it's right. it hits him right on the metal. So it conducts because of that. I right. don't know. And, and then, then another, another Doom robot, of course. Another Doom robot. And then there's like a, a fire shooting, flying spherical machine that actually looks much more like something out of Dr. Strange. Yeah, the energy coming, I, this is another sort of like visceral childhood memories. I always thought the, the images of this energy coming off of this thing is, is so beautiful. And you're right, it, it doesn't look like electricity where like jagged lightning bolts. It has this kind of wavy kind of, yeah, almost supernatural quality to the shape of it. And they're all misshapen and lumpy and each one, each kind of bolt is a different size. I always thought this this sequence as a kid, I remember reading it and thinking this, it's actually really intense as a, as a 13 year old reading this and thinking how kind of scary these uh, disintegrator lasers are that are coming after Spider-Man here. Finally, like he's fought his way past the Doom bots. He's grappling mano a mano with Doom. And then- He punches him right in the face at one point. Punches this him right this, in the face, yeah. Yeah, this was another question I had was, I felt like, and you know, having looked back yesterday at some of these early issues doesn't seem like until now like dr doom did a lot of like hand-to-hand -hand fighting yeah. mostly it's death traps and here he's like actually yeah duking it out with spider-man which is no no small feat 
going toe to toe with this guy and even like, yeah, punching him right in the jaw there on the bottom of page 18. I can just see uh, Jack Kirby thinking like Doom would never do that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know that he would in those in those previous appearances. He, yeah. Suddenly he's like, yeah, he's like a street fighter here. Although in the middle of this fight, what comes back is the iron balls from the satellite machine earlier and they come back and trip up Spider-Man. Yes. It's a nice moment too. Just in time for the uh, fantastic car to show up outside with the fantastic four inside it and for doom to once again, run away. And then of course he realizes like, Oh no, Aunt May is still at home in the dark. Doesn't stick around long enough to rescue flash leaves the fantastic four to do the flash rescuing stuff. It's like literally a panel of victory of happiness before like he goes from, I did it. You know, they're going to be the fantastic four is not going to believe it when they see that I found Dr. Doom and I, and then literally the next panel, wait a minute. I just remembered Aunt May. you know, it's like the rug has immediately been been pulled out from under him. Yeah. It's fantastic. The the Danny mom is the last page. We see the thing kind of, holding up Flash by his collarbone and looking like he's about to slug him. Really upset that they went to, we went to all this trouble for a nobody. Flash all of a sudden has gone from being like the football star to being a nobody when he's got a Spider-Man suit on. Peter getting home, realizing that he forgot to get a fuse. Another scene at a newspaper office where once again, Jonah is ranting and Peter is realizing that he's got a little bit of a crush going on Betty. Well, and Betty, is, Betty is, thinks he's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, as you said, like Flash boasting about uh, having one day and uh, Peter feeling emasculated. Yes. I've got nothing but luck and it's all bad. I mean, that really, oh, that's a, that's. That's a that really sums it up. He doesn't get the so many of these early Ditko Lee and Ditko issues. You know, the last panel is like Peter Parker walking off dejectedly alone into the distance. I, I, this one doesn't have that. It has it has that great expression on his face, going the oh brother kind of get a load of this guy expression. And I've got nothing but luck, and it's all bad. So this is not the last of Peter's encounters with Doom, but it's going to be a while until we see him again, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, as you noted, when we were going through the issue, it's like he is a really good villain for Spider-Man, especially in those early issues, because he is kind of he fits the mold of those classic Spider-Man villains that you were talking about, the mad scientist, the potential father figure, all those things. And so he fits perfectly into those early issues, which which all have, you know, the, the uh, you know, Spider-Man sort of rogues gallery. So it's interesting that they didn't bring him back again. I guess maybe he was being reserved for you know, many Fantastic Four appearances, but uh, you don't want to overexpose the character or something. But he, he works so well here. It is surprising that they didn't use him again. The other interesting thing about uh, Doom as he is here is he doesn't really have any goal other than to defeat the Fantastic Four. Right. We don't see his lust for power, which comes up a little bit later. We don't really see him doing much of anything wrong. And there's a spot of kidnapping. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's probably not too legal to take over the airwaves, but... Yeah, we, the FCC wouldn't look kindly on that move. It's not really clear what is so bad about him. It's still, like, in any of his appearances so far, it's not clear what's so bad about Doom. You're saying you think he gets a little bit of a bum rap? I think it's clarified a little later what's so bad about Doom. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but at this point, uh, just we, we are to understand that... He is the villain because Reed Richards says so. Right. And he has exactly the same attitude about Reed. 
Right. Um, yeah, should... no, it's true. It's, it, you know, as you said, he, you know, there's no Latveria at this point. And I feel like without that, that's such an important element of so much of, of not, not just the stories, but like who he is as a person and the motivations for all of these things that he's doing and the world domination and whatnot, that uh, without it, it just, it just doesn't seem like a, you know, good old doom or bad old doom. Like he's, he, he, he's not quite complete without, without that. And it is kind of funny to just see him kind of like lurking around like layers in New York city. Like I, they keep referring to them as like abandoned empty warehouses and stuff. And I feel like the, the real doom, the, the doom, the full doom, the one that would come to blossom eventually would not be caught dead in an abandoned warehouse. That would be beneath doom to be yeah. in an abandoned warehouse. He would have, you know, much more regal surroundings and, you know, the castle that he has in some of those earlier Fantastic Fours, much more his, his speed than the abandoned warehouse. Pshaw, that deserves a ba for the, the Marvel ba blog. One last question, which is how, how do you see this, this story or elements of this story or the themes of the story echoing in the rest of Spider-Man's history? It's funny because like I, like I had said at the very beginning, it's like that I had this connection with this comic and I, but I, at the time, I think that you could probably buy, cause this is, you know, like the early nineties. So you could get a reprint of Amazing Fantasy and you could maybe get some of those early issues. I think eventually I did get them in, you know, this was before though they were putting out those, I forget what they called them, maybe the essentials, the black and white collections, oh, yeah, right, yes, yeah. the phone book yeah, ones. Yeah. You know, that was where I was able to first read those issues because for a 13 year old kid, you know, you can't, you can't, there's no Marvel Unlimited, there's no internet, you know, or the internet is, you know, people in a chat room on America Online and dial up. Like it was a different world. So I didn't have the context of a lot of those other early issues when I was reading that. You know, Spider Man to me was, this was like the, like 300. 50 to 75 era was like when I was reading this. So Spider-Man is married and he's like a totally different guy, which I liked. I loved those issues. Don't get me wrong, but it was, but it was different. And so it was interesting as a kid to read that and see him as this, as this, you know, more dweeby character with the glasses and the tie and he's, you know, and Flash is making fun of him and picking on him. But there are these things, and even though it's Dr. Doom, and I remember as a kid being like, why, you know, like that did seem unusual, yeah. like, right? That this issue, num- and, it, and the fact that it's the fifth issue and he's already fighting Dr. Doom and it's not Electro or Sandman or whoever, but, it, but you read it and there, we, we talked about some of these things, how perfectly Dr. Doom did fit that, that mold of the villain that Lee and Ditko had kind of been establishing and repeating. And the way that, the, the sort of core dilemma here, you know, you said like Doom doesn't really have, you know, he's just kind of messing around. It's like he's bored and he's, yeah. you know, he's kind of annoyed that the Fantastic Four showed him up. Like for Spider-Man, it's just kind of like he, it, you really, even though they don't mention uh, Uncle Ben that much at all, it's, you really sense that if not for that weighing on him in the back of his mind, Flash Thompson would be dead. Yeah. <laughs> he would be dead. Like he would, and Peter would be delighted that he would be dead. Like, you know, that 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 panel that I talked about as being like the er panel of this comic and and of so many of these early issues. It's like, I'm pretty sure I don't have an open in front of me at the moment, but I'm pretty sure Peter has a big grin on his face. Like it's not just that he's contemplating Flash's death. The the prospect gives him a, a sense of delight. Mm-hmm. And there is that sort of, there's much more of that kind of dilemma in those early issues that they were really kind of playing with that, um, 
you know, that, that, that he really is this kind of teenager who is, is irresponsible. Right. And, and, you know, and that's what he's uh, sort of struggling with. And so it, this whole thing about Flash wanting to uh, one-up him and accidentally falling, stumbling into this trap meant for the real Spider-Man and then Spider-Man having having to save him, but kind of hoping maybe he dies. Yeah. It's just sort of a perfect um, microcosm of, of a lot of these early issues. Like like I was saying, so many of them have that this exact structure. The details are different, but the idea of Spider-Man having to do something you know, it screws up a date, it pisses off Aunt May, he misses a test, you know, and so whenever he succeeds, he fails, you know, in some other way, you know, he defeats the villain, but Peter gets an F, or he defeats the villain, but Betty is mad at him, or Betty's brother dies, which is like a whole, you know, like, there are these horrible things that happen, you know, Gwen Stacy's father dies, and all these, and Aunt Gwen Stacy herself dies, like, it it becomes, maybe it becomes a bit much at a certain point, but that that sort of um, push and pull um, is the thing that it is, I think is such a, it's so beautiful about this character and it's so wonderful uh, about these issues that they had already kind of honed in on is, is working that and twisting that and, and messing with the character and, and messing with the reader too, because yeah. that's part of the fun is, is, is Peter gonna save the day this time or is he gonna let Flash Thompson suffocate to death in a doom uh, death trap? Um, I think all that stuff actually makes it a really kind of, you know, certainly it doesn't have any of those famous villains, but I mean, other than that, it really is kind of a, a perfect early issue of Spider-Man where if you're gonna read like one issue to get, get the flavor of this period, this is a pretty good one. Matt Singer, thank you so much again for joining us. And now it's time for Listener Mailbag. Our listener Gigi Granis writes, I've been a Doom fan for years and wanted to offer my take that I've always seen Doom as more a sorcerer or magician who also practices science rather than the scientist who dabbles in magic. That being said, I've always been most interested in his family and cultural history with magic. There are certainly some problematic elements to the depiction of Doom's home and family, but as a Roma woman myself, I've always found that while our representation is often imperfect, I try to take a personally aspirational interpretation where I can and Doom, his mother, and Latveria are there to see myself and another possible world in. While Latveria's depictions may be varied, I'm always going to be interested in a place where people like me and my ancestors are protected and cared for, and so while the text isn't always really that kind, that's the view I try to take of it. My question then is about the history of the depiction of Doom's magic. I'm pretty young, and have only read bits and pieces and certain issues that I could find online, so I don't have a full picture of how Romani culture is presented in Latveria, how linked to mystical practices it is, and what Doom's mystical upbringing has looked like over the years, if it's been changed or retconned, and where have those depictions been sourced from in real-world mystical traditions and mythology. All hail Lord Doom, Gigi. Thank you so much for writing, Gigi. Uh, I have to say that signing off All Hail Lord Doom is exactly the right way to sign off a question like this. Uh, I will say that historically, for the most part, comics involving Dr. Doom have a depiction of Romani culture and real-world mystical traditions that is completely 100% made up, out of whole cloth, not researched at all, nothing like that. That said, it's very sympathetic. It's just not terribly informed. 
And like many things that Jack Kirby and Stan Lee and many other creators later on had a hand in, it is open enough that you can read what you want into it for the most part. You can put the thing that you want in the story into the story, and it's not going to mess with the story. I will say that much for it. But actual accuracy, actual research, not necessarily so much. That said, uh, for a kind of overview of the history of Doom in his culture, uh, comics-wise, what you're going to want to look at is a miniseries from 2005 called The Books of Doom by Ed Brubaker and Pablo Raimondi. And Brubaker and Raimondi's story, it doesn't really retcon much of anything. It just sort of synthesizes every other source into a single narrative for Doom's childhood and young adulthood and rise to power in Latveria that makes a good deal of sense. We haven't really talked about it on the show so far because it has kind of a frame story that's set closer to the present day, so we're going to be tackling it when we get there, which is probably a few years out. But yeah, Books of Doom, that's the thing you're going to want to look at. Thank you again, Gigi. If you and the other listeners have a question about anything having to do with Doctor Doom or this show or Latverian culture in general, you can send us an email. The address is faithfulretainerboris at voiceoflatveria.com. Next week, I'll be discussing Avengers number one and a half. Yes, that's right, one and a half, with special guest Katie Pride. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Wolk for the VOL. Zero, zero, six. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, six. Tomorrow, on Monsters of the 20th Century, we investigate the appearance of one of the very first giant monsters, the Ghoul, at Bikini Atoll in 1946. We'll go into detail on the careers of Professor Clark Dane and his mysterious associate Dr. Kirby, and look into whether the ghoul's enormous, screw-shaped vehicle could have indicated a connection to Subterranea or Monster Island. That's Monsters of the 20th Century, on Voice of Latveria. This concludes our broadcast day. May Lord Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die. Mm-hmm.